I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. The longer a tradition lasts, the more it appears to be part of the natural order. It is a fixture so permanent, it shall forever be. Because so permanent a fixture, it has forever been. Which means, when something comes along to challenge that tradition, more often than not, the result is confusion and frustration, if not outright hostility. New approaches often baffle, annoy and divide audiences. Which is what happened in 2007 with the release of Zodiac. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill something to me the most thrilling experience it is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl the best part of it is that when i die i will be reborn in paradise then all that i have killed will become my slaves i will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife although starring jake gyllenhaal robert downey jr and mark ruffalo a large part of the marketing campaign zeroed in on the fact that director David Fincher was returning to an old hunting ground. After all, it was Fincher who shocked audiences and shook the serial killer genre to its very foundations. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony. Greed. Sloth. Wrath. Pride. Lust. And envy. Working from Andrew Kevin Walker's oppressively dark script, Finch's direction established a breathtakingly bleak tone before Seven's credits had even begun, and then relentlessly maintained it all the way through to its despairing finale. Although I believe that climax contradicted the plot's own ingenious premise, I have to admit it just about got away with that inconsistency, if only because the denouement was orchestrated by sociopathic John Doe, a personality whose deep-seated misanthropy was matched only by his self-righteous, warped rationale. You hear me, Detective. I'm trying to tell you how much I admire you and your pretty wife. What? Tracy. What'd you fucking say? It's disturbing how easily a member of the press can purchase information from the men in your precinct. But what elevated Seven from thrilling to chilling and undoubtedly helped it earn over $300 million at the worldwide box office was the way it challenged the tradition of both the horror and detective genres. Those traditions implied that no matter how ominous your premise, no matter how demonic your antagonist, no matter how great the odds, thou shalt ensure evil be vanquished and good prevail. But Seven ended not just in defeat, but utter ruination. Psychological carnage on a level Hollywood cinema had not dared deliver since Roman Polanski's Chinatown in 1974, and before that, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo in 1958. Together, the three films offer up visions so unsettling, it suggests studios and audiences can only stomach them every few decades. Either way, Chinatown and Vertigo not only end with the deaths of innocent people, they also allowed the villains to escape, and then, as if that were not enough, they abandoned their protagonists to suffer the torments of the damned. Go home, Jake. There is, however, one crucial difference between Zodiac and all those films. Zodiac is based on fact. 
adapted by James Vanderbilt from two Robert Graysmith books, it focuses on the investigations into the Zodiac Killer, who claimed to have murdered anywhere between five and over 35 people, all in San Francisco's Bay Area from the late 1960s to the mid-1970s. Even before he began what turned out to be exhaustive research, Vanderbilt understood his loyalty was to chronicle those events as faithfully as he could, which appears to be the exact opposite to the method adopted by other filmmakers who had already tackled the Zodiac story. Before Finch's film was released, there had been no less than nine variations on the killing spree, all of them made within a tradition so permanent it has its own phrase, dramatic license. Dramatic license is not so much a natural order as it is practically a filmmaker's constitution, the First Amendment of which protects the filmmaker's right to tinker with the facts, all in order to feed the audience's appetite for thrills, spills and gore. But since Fincher insisted Vanderbilt's script meticulously honour the events as accurately as possible, he went out of his way to avoid all the tricks and tropes so readily associated with the genre, which may have resulted in a masterpiece but a masterpiece nonetheless that left audiences confused, frustrated and very much divided. Here is Fincher on the Charlie Rose show in 2017, detailing what he learned from the disappointment. Um, you can ask a lot of an audience, but, you know, two hours and 45 minutes and no closure is probably, you know, yes, get a babysitter, yes, find a parking, yes, wait in line, sit and ha have, you know, people with their, with their phones on in your peripheral vision and concentrate for two hours and 45 minutes is asking a lot. Which means that the most popular incarnation of the Zodiac story began as a fictional script by husband and wife team Harry and Rita Fink before being run through the typewriters of Joe Himes, then Dean Risner, Terence Malick and finally John Milius. Along the way, the various drafts were offered up to and turned down by Frank Sinatra, Robert Mitchum, Lee Marvin, Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, before finally Clint Eastwood took the title role. Why do they call you Dirty Harry? Well, that's one thing about our Harry. Doesn't play any favourites. Harry hates everybody. Limeys, Mix, Heebs, Fat Dagos, Niggers, Honkies, Chinks. You name it. How's he feel about Mexicans? Ask him. Especially Spicks. Directed by Don Siegel in 1971, Dirty Harry says it cares about the rights of the victim and indeed devotes a long sequence to Harry desperately trying to locate Anne-Mary Deacons, the teenage girl whom Scorpio has kidnapped, raped and buried alive. But once her remains have been recovered, the film then discards both her and her memory and instead follows Harry on his quest for what he deems to be justice. The girl, where is she? She tried to kill me! If I tried that, your head would be splattered all over this field. Now, where's the girl? I want you. I said, where's the girl? I have the right for a lawyer. Where's the girl? I, I have the right for a lawyer. In trying to navigate the maze of the Zodiac mystery, Vanderbilt spent more than three years researching and structuring the script, the result of which was a final draft that ran to over 200 pages. You can read it online, and all throughout, you will find that Vanderbilt's telling of the impenetrable mystery broke with the tradition of the serial killer genre. As a result, audiences came away complaining that this thriller was not all that thrilling, gory or even scary. And as if that were not criminal enough, it didn't even have a twist ending. Every serial killer movie was supposed to have that. From the 90s editions such as Kiss the Girls and Candyman, 
My Bloody Valentine and Friday the 13th in the 80s, The Eyes of Laura Mars and Black Christmas in the 70s, back to the 60s with Blood Rites and Psycho, and then even further back to 1919 with the granddaddy of the entire series, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Ever since then, the traditional of the serial killer picture is to climax with an unexpected final turn that upends everything that has gone before. Of course, the twist in Zodiac is that to this day, the killer's identity has never been confirmed, which is how the film defies the convention and tradition of the genre. But what is genre? The classical definition is a means by which art is categorised. In painting, there is portraiture, landscape and historical. In music, you have country, jazz and blues. In literature, fiction and non-fiction, romance, mystery and fantasy. All of them ways the viewer, listener or reader can contextualise what is happening. Or a less prosaic explanation would be that genre is a set of standards by which contrivances can be accepted, if not expected, by the audience. It settles on repetition to the point of familiarity. It is, to quote from Shakespeare's The Killing of King John, a twice-told tale. In fact, the full line reading from that play is, Life is as tedious as a twice-told tale vexing the dull ear of a drowsy man. So clearly, the challenge for anyone dealing in genre is to ensure that in retelling what is familiar, there is enough variation for the audience to feel that they have not seen it all before. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. Why not? You got four crime scenes, Solano, Vallejo, Berryessa, and here, not a single usable print of the first three or in any of the letters. Beyond defying genre convention, Zodiac is also an audacious piece of construction. At every turn, it completely ignores the traditional three-act structure of setup, complication and resolution. To begin, Zodiac strikes only three times in the film, and instead of spreading those out evenly amongst the three acts, Vanderbilt and Fincher limit them to the first 30 minutes. Thus, the audience spends the next two hours expecting a breakthrough in and a closure of the case. But because the film is based on actual events, the carrot and stick structure is abandoned, and the focus is instead solely on the characters doing the investigating. Hello. Bill. Hmm. There's not many basements in California. Basement for future use. I tried. I'll have Vallejo and uh, Napa check with their city planners. Get some sleep. Uh, yeah, sure. Rather than building towards a resolution, Zodiac doggedly digs itself ever deeper into a labyrinth of false leads and dead ends. The puzzle mutates and multiplies and becomes ever more bewildering. In that way, the film comes to resemble the stupefying puzzles Zodiac sent to the newspapers in order to taunt the police. And it is there in the newspaper offices, with editorial meetings and journalists typing up their articles, that Zodiac comes to resemble one of Fincher's favourite films. You guys are about to write a story that says the former Attorney General, the highest ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Just be sure you're right. Where Alan J. Pakula's masterpiece attests to the fastidious pursuit of truth in order to expose the abuse of power, Fincher's film gives us an examination of social and psychological chaos. Things happen, people struggle to make sense of them, and then things fall apart. Played by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Graysmith's second marriage collapses. Anthony Edwards's Inspector William Armstrong quits the case while Mark Ruffalo's Dave Toskey is removed from it for improper conduct. 
or it can completely capsize the less stable personalities, such as Paul Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr., who slides from a dapper, droll crime correspondent into a dissipated, down-at-heel dipsomaniac. As the tagline for the film's promotional material read, there's more than one way to lose your life to a killer. The film is not about Zodiac, but rather the investigation, the procedure, the method. And because we see people working hard to solve the murders, it is also about work as a moral act, an exercise in virtue, an effort which through sheer repetitiveness and routine staves off the distracted mind and hence evil deeds. The film takes the ever-loosening framework provided by the various theories surrounding Zodiac's true identity and uses it to examine obsession. The results consume and isolate the characters, not only from those around them, but also from themselves. Just look at the amount of time the film devotes to Graysmith looking at the photographs of the victims. He pours over them as you and I would reminisce over a family album. Or if the events were to unfold today, the way people scroll through their Instagram, Snapchat and Facebook feeds. That is because the whole film is a question of faces. It opens and closes with a subtle but also incredibly tragic mirror. As the film ends in 1991, the last face we see is Mike Meggio, which is also the first face we saw when the film started way back on the 4th of July in 1969. Now, two decades later, we suddenly see, etched in Meggio's face, the ravages the intervening years have wrought upon the lives of everyone else. Now on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being positive, I'll show sure you. <clears throat> At least an eight. Last time I saw this face was July 4th, 1969. Right now, David Fincher is developing the second season of the Netflix series Mindhunter, which again, on the surface at least, is about serial murders. It's as if... We don't know anymore what moves people to kill one another. Used to be, you find a victim with 50 stab wounds, you look for the jilted lover, the ex-business partner. Now, could be a random run-in with a disgruntled mailman. It's a different era. No more just the facts, ma'am. That's television. But just as Zodiac avoided genre cliché, so too does Mindhunter show Fincher examining the subject from yet another angle. Seven was heavily infused with a fascination for the crime and the criminal. But even though it contained precious little actual violence, the tone was very much on the horror. By contrast, Zodiac examined how the chaos and misery wrought by the murders impacted on people directly and indirectly involved in the crimes. And now with this Netflix series, Fincher is exploring the eureka moment at the FBI when the Behavioral Science Division was set up, thus shifting the thrust of investigation from solving a murder to preventing murder. By interviewing the serial murderers themselves, the FBI can go back into their pasts to identify errant behaviour in suspects on other cases. But what Fincher does in Mindhunter is pull back the curtain to reveal no mastermind genius with a predilection for gourmet food and fine wine. Instead, he shows the damage they have wrought on others because their minds are profoundly damaged to begin with. Hopefully, this departure from tradition will neither baffle, frustrate or divide audiences. Here is Fincher once again from the same interview with Charlie Rose. To me, it's, these are very sad um, people who've you know, grown up under horrendous circumstances. 
this is not to you know overstate how much empathy or, or sympathy we should have for them. It's just simply a fact. And 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 we had seen so much you know of this sort of literary conceit of there's a very fine line separates the hunters from the hunted. And and I really thought it was time to sort of take that back. Thank you.